Well, good evening. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Book of Esther, chapter 2, where we left off last week. We got through chapter 1 in our introduction, and now we are in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is where really the story, or our story, the account within God's Word, truly begins. I mean, chapter 1 is more of a prologue. Chapter 1 is more of a a setup for the rest of the account. But in chapter 2, we're going to see that this is the chapter where Xerxes makes Esther his queen instead of Vashti, who was deposed as queen in the last chapter. As we get into the study, I think the most important lesson we need to learn here, the most important thing to dwell on, is that the theme of this book is divine providence. And it's so true that divine providence triumphs despite man's disobedience. In spite of man's disobedience, God is not only sovereign, but his perfect will is done. How does that work out? We we talked about last week how the name of God doesn't even show up in this book. And yet God is so obviously working on behalf of his people that when you tell people, I know when I heard the first time when the name of God, Jehovah, was never used in this book, I think, no, 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 certainly. He's he's within every, every chapter, every paragraph, every verse. Yes. But he's working in ways yet undiscovered by the people involved. And he's working in ways yet undiscovered in your life by you. So keep that in mind as we go through the study that divine providence triumphs, always triumphs despite man's disobedience. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word and this time together this evening. It's been a long day and there are many things happening in our lives and yet we just want to set aside this time, this moment for you to speak to us, for us to hear from you. Lord, we need to be reminded that you truly are in control of all things and that there's nothing happening in our lives or in this world at this time that isn't completely under your control. That you truly are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes, even when we get in the way, even when we're not where we're supposed to be or in the absolute wrong place somehow divinely, you are able to supernaturally and sovereignly work for our good, according to your will. That is such a pleasant thought. That is such an encouraging thought. Help us to hold that in our hearts this evening as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, what a truth. That is a truth we need to meditate on and contemplate, and that's exactly what we're going to do this evening. Let's start by setting the stage Xerxes waged a disastrous and costly war against Greece. We talked about it before it happened in chapter 1. He was preparing for that. And this all took place during the last four years of his reign, from about 483 to 479 B.C. Persia was soundly defeated at the battles of Thermopylae and Salamis in 480 B.C. Xerxes had had this banquet in this time of exhibition of all of his wealth to try to encourage people to support his war effort. And the truth of the matter is, it was a disaster. After all the posturing and all of the politics, he failed to beat Greece, to defeat them. 
And so what Xerxes did is he plunged himself into all kinds of excesses in an attempt to forget his humiliating defeat. He did his best to try to forget. And so we pick it up in verse 1. In Esther 2, we read, Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, now this is the anger that he had had toward Vashti for not coming forward and allowing herself to be uh, presented to his military commanders and his governors at the banquet that took place years earlier. But here's what happened. When his anger subsided, he remembered Vashti and what he had done, what she had done, excuse me, and what he had decreed about her. So he takes a moment, you know, he starts to think, and, and, and just sort of plunging himself into excesses, he thinks, oh, where's my queen? Oh, yeah, that's right. I had to remove this queen when she wouldn't obey me. He remembered how she had refused to come to the banquet. He remembered his royal decree to remove her from her position as queen. And, of course, this decree would be unchangeable because unlike other empires, like the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian law could not be repealed. Once a law was set in motion, it could not be repealed. And this decree would ban her from ever being in Xerxes' presence again. This decree would give a royal position as queen to someone better suited to the role. So at this moment, he has a harem, he has many concubines, but he doesn't have a queen that he can show off to the world. And he realizes Vashti can no longer be in his presence, wherever she is, whatever the situation might be. So Xerxes' personal attendants, they decide to propose a plan to replace Vashti as queen. And I believe this is as much to get him out of his funk as it is to set things right in the kingdom. And so we read in verses 2 through 4, Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. And let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. And then... Let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And, not surprisingly, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. They were giving him advice he was bound to follow, being the kind of person he is. Now, let me also say, I said this last week, when we looked at the chauvinism that was taking place in this part of the world, let me say the objectification of women in this, in this book of the Bible is, is sickening, to be frank. It's pretty disgusting. But that is the way it was, and unfortunately still is in many parts of the world. So just because we're talking about it doesn't mean we endorse it or condone it or that God approves of it. So I just want to say that up front. You know, so many sensitive people today, if you talk about something that happened in history, even if it actually did happen, you know, people get sensitive about it. You know, well, this isn't the place to be overly sensitive, but I can say that it is disgusting to me. In fact, this chapter in particular is is. is is awful. I mean, I'm not a big fan of beauty contests to begin with, because I think in general they're very objectifying of women. I'm glad to say those things have sort of faded over the years. They're not as popular as they were, and, and now even so, they, they try to focus more on character and other things, but still, I, I'm not a fan of that. I think most women would agree. Most men would agree, I think, at this point. But here's what we do know. They suggested that he appoint commissioners to bring beautiful young virgins to the king. I mean, vulgar. 
Downright disgusting. But remember, this is the Persian Empire. It wasn't about me too. It wasn't about the rights of women or what's right or what's wrong. It was about excess, as we've already talked about. Now, these girls would be placed in the harem at the citadel of Susa and placed under the care of Haggai. And these girls would be given beauty treatments before being brought to the king as his concubines. So again, vulgar, to be frank. And they suggested that he choose one of these girls to be queen instead of Vashti. So he brings in all these concubines, and, and obviously, he, it's just awful. But one lucky girl is going to become queen. And I say that facetiously. Awful stuff, really. But their suggestions appealed to him, so he, of course, followed their advice. So then we're introduced now to the main characters of this account in God's word, Mordecai and Esther. We talked about them last week. We're now introduced to them. I hesitate to say that they are the heroes of this book because I don't know that there is a hero in this book. So much of what takes place is questionable and downright vulgar that it's hard to say that anyone in this book is really to be praised. Mordecai, Esther more so, perhaps, than Mordecai, but certainly not the other characters in this book. So is there truly a hero? Probably not. But if you were going to have a protagonist, of course, it would be Mordecai and Esther. But when you look at their flaws and the things they choose to do, it's easy to come to this conclusion. Divine providence triumphs despite man's disobedience. So even though men and women are disobedient to God, God is still working on their behalf, on behalf of his people. And that is such an encouraging thought because I think if, if you take a moment right now and think of just the last three days, there are probably several instances where you failed to be the man or the woman that God has called you to be. A moment of anger, a moment of, of, of a lack of faith. A moment where you didn't say the right thing or you thought the wrong thing. And, and, and if you think about it, if God were limited to our getting it right, God wouldn't get anything done, would he? But he's not. And aren't you glad that, you know, his plan A takes into consideration all of our failures along the way. And it doesn't endorse our failures or our wickedness or our sin. It just says that God is so great. He can work through all of that failure in our lives. And I'm glad because I get a lot of failure in my life. If God can't work through my mistakes and my failures, he can't work in my life. But we know he can, amen? So now we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther, and I got a little bit of background here, just so you understand why I say there really aren't any heroes in this book. The Jews were living in a wealthy, worldly empire, while a faithful remnant had returned to Judah about 55 years earlier. We, we addressed this in the book of Ezra. Uh, we talked a little bit about it in the book of Nehemiah as well. See, Mordecai and Esther were among the Jews that were still living in Babylon. Fifty-five years later, they were still living in Babylon when they could have gone back to their nation in Judah. Cyrus had issued an edict allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple in 538 B.C. What do we say? We're in about 479 B.C. at this point. Zerubbabel led the first return of the Jews back to their homeland in Judea, that same year that Cyrus issued his decree, again in 538, they made, the Jews that returned, made a very difficult choice to give up such worldly wealth and return to their native land, to their homeland. It cost them something. In fact, 50,000 faithful gave up lucrative businesses and comfortable homes to follow God's call back to where he had called them to be. 
but only 50,000. That's the sad truth. And Mordecai, and to a lesser degree Esther as well, they never chose to return. They stayed put and got comfortable in the area of Babylon, what was part of the Persian Empire. So imagine, it's not hard to imagine, God calls you out of a situation and you choose to stay in a situation that's not very good because it it benefits you. But it's not honoring to God. It's not God's will. God has called you out of that situation. You just stay put. I, I can remember, it was so difficult for me. When I was called to come to Christ and Christ revealed himself to me, I was in a, in a band. That's what I did. I, I was a, a musician. That was my job. And I was in a wedding band in the 80s. So if you've ever seen The Wedding Singer, you know what I did. Not quite, but close. So it was very difficult because immediately I realized that was something that God was calling me out of. Certainly not away from music, but certainly into more worship, ministry, and other things that were more productive spiritually, and out of the world that really wasn't a good place for me to be, especially at that time. The difficult thing was that half of the income that I received at that time was coming through the the band. So for me to step away from the business I was in, I was going to lose half my income. So I did everything I could to justify how I needed to stay in that job and in that business as long as I could. It was good money cash money, which means, I hope the IRS isn't listening to this, although I think we're over the statute of limitations now. It's very many years ago now. Uh, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, let's put it that way. So when I was convicted, I realized I got to stop. So I sold my van to the band, sold my shares in the business and left the band. They weren't happy. I, I, I wasn't all that happy either, but I knew that this would, is what God had called me to do. Literally the week after I made that decision. The worship leader at the church I was attending, Harvest, asked me to join the worship team. I was waiting for them. I mean, I'm a professional musician. Why haven't they asked? You know, I'm like thinking to myself, come on, guys. But it was God holding back until I would submit to his will. That was a hard decision. It wasn't easy. It cost me something. I I struggled financially for a little while after that. But you know something? It's the best decision I made. Because that led to everything I'm involved in now in my life, even musically. I had to come to a place where I realized that God's will, though it cost me something, was so much better than a lucrative business opportunity or a job that I liked or doing things that are not correct according to the law. So these Jews in Babylon were kind of doing that. They were skating the line. Oh, yeah, we're Jews. We worship God. We're not leaving our businesses. We're not going anywhere. We're staying put. This is a great place to be. And Persia was a great place for the Jews to be. But it wasn't where God had called them to be. So if that applies to you, you may not sleep very well tonight, but I did my job. (laughs) Trust me. I know how it is. Their return from Babylon had been prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah, earnestly prayed for by the prophet Daniel. And the Lord even confirmed that this was his will for them through prophets like Haggai and Zechariah. God couldn't have been more clear throughout their history, throughout the last 55 years. And still, there they are, Mordecai and Esther and other Jews, in the place God had not called them to be. Listen, the temple had been rebuilt after many years of opposition in 515 B.C., Jerusalem was still in ruins, largely uninhabited and littered with debris. Of course, Nehemiah would come years later and fix that problem. But for now, they were in the place where God had not called them to be and not in the place God had called them to be. And so we pick it up in verses 5 through 7 
We read, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordechai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Bless you. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. And this girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Well, that doesn't seem so bad, right? It seems like Mordecai is a pretty good human being, and I think he genuinely cared for her as a daughter. But when you're in the wrong place, the the things that shouldn't happen, happen. And the things that should happen, don't happen. And and that's what we're going to see. This whole chapter happens because they're in the wrong place. And the consequences of this chapter and all the things that take place, God is in control of. But let's pause a moment and realize, when you're not where God has called you to be, bad things happen. And bad things are about to happen. God is still in control. But there's a lot of disobedience here. And God works anyway. Now, Mordecai was a Jew living in the citadel of Susa, in the capital. He was descended from the tribe of Benjamin through his great-grandfather Kish. His great-grandfather was taken captive when the Jews were taken into captivity. Kish had been taken captive uh, to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar with Jehoiachin, the, the king of Judah, in 597 B.C., many, many years earlier. And Mordecai had raised his orphaned cousin Hadassah as his own daughter in Babylon. Also known as Esther, she was a beautiful young girl, a virgin. She qualifies for this sick and twisted beauty contest. Here's what we learn, and this is upsetting. I certainly don't approve. In verse 8, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. And the, the girl pleased him and won his favor. And immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and, and, and special food, whatever that was. And he assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Now, you see the hand of God in that? You do. You do. You see the hand of God. But remember the theme of especially the book, but also tonight's study. Divine providence triumphs despite man's disobedience. Just because we're disobedient and God still works doesn't mean we're not disobedient. See, a lot of people, they look at their blessings and they say, well, I'm blessed, so I must be doing the right thing. (laughs) Listen, I am abundantly blessed, but I don't always do or say the right thing. In fact, I'm so aware of God's blessings despite my disobedience that it would be wrong for me to say that I do everything right. But God does bless despite those things. And that just goes to show you what a good and gracious God we serve. Aren't you glad? Say amen. That's a good thing. Well... As we see, Esther was taken to the king's palace, placed in the harem. Not a good future for a young Jewish girl. Think about it. Xerxes had issued a royal order to bring beautiful young virgins to the king. Now, Esther was taken to the king and placed under the care of Haggai. It is possible, maybe even likely, that she was taken from Mordecai against his will. But it's just as likely and and quite possible that Mordecai took Esther to the king's palace. You're going to see that Mordecai, a a very persuasive and influential person, but a conniver, someone who who is looking to move up and move ahead, and and he could be, and I I don't know, I I wasn't there, but 
it could be that this man really just took advantage of the opportunity for his own benefit, for the benefit of his people, and even maybe assuming that Esther would benefit from this in some way. I don't know. But if it was true, then this is in direct contradiction to Scripture. They are not supposed to intermarry in this way, certainly. God calls his people to separate themselves from the world, and this woman is being put right in the center of it all. It's important to note, in defense of Esther, that culturally she had no right or authority to resist being taken to the palace. I don't blame her in the, in the least. I mean, she could have been taken against her will by the Persians or told to go against her will by Mordecai. You can't say that this was Esther's idea. And then we see what oftentimes happens. There are innocent victims that suffer because of man's disobedience. A parent makes a bad decision. A loved one makes a, de- a decision that's against God's will. A spouse. And the Other people in that person's life, they suffer many times because of the bad decisions and disobedience of someone in the family or someone in authority. But God is so good that despite that, he works. And I feel rather bad for Esther. I I don't think she would have chosen this for herself, but she didn't have a choice. That's the point. If anyone had a choice, it was Mordecai, and he may not have even had a choice. But I wonder what would have happened if they were in Judea where they were supposed to be just a thought. But God works anyway. Joseph, Daniel, they were likewise taken against their will to serve in pagan palaces. Not the same situation, but they were taken against their will. Did God work in Joseph's life? How about Daniel's life? So it's important to recognize you may find yourself in a situation that you didn't ask for, that that isn't something that you desired, one that's the result of someone's disobedience, maybe not even your own. And you shouldn't stop and think, well, well, God can't work in my life now. God is so much bigger than that. I just think of Joseph. I mean, do you think Joseph wanted to be thrown in a pit and sold into slavery? Become a slave? Do you think that's what he wanted? How about Daniel? You think he wanted to be taken away from his home in 605 BC and dragged with other young men? to Babylon, to serve as essentially slaves, servants? No. But when you think of those men's lives and Esther's life, you're hard-pressed to find another example of someone who was used as mightily by God. Amen? So what's the lesson here? You may be in a situation that's less than ideal. One that you didn't ask for. One that isn't fair. One that you didn't want. But don't start to think for a minute that God can't use you and work mightily in and through your life. Well, Esther pleased this Haggai, who was the eunuch who was in charge of taking care of the women, won his favor over the other girls in the harem, and you stop and think, well, why? Why? Why is it that someone gains the favor of someone else? Oh, I don't doubt that Esther's character as a person had a lot to do with it. But is it just a little possible that God was involved in this? God has a plan, despite the disobedience, to put Esther right at the center of this. And she's going to win this beauty contest. Unfortunately, it's something she's involved in. But, and God is going to make sure because God's plan includes her being there. So even though God is not the author of this situation, he works in it anyway. And that's hard to understand sometimes, especially if you're going through something like that. But he, Haggai immediately provided her with beauty treatment, special food. He gave her every advantage. She stands a chance to win simply because, hey, it's who you know. And this guy, hey guy, he decides to give her every advantage and he assigns seven maids. That means she's got people taking care of her and she's in the best place in the harem. 
Now, I want you to remember that Joseph and Daniel, who we've already talked about, also won the favor of others, didn't they? While they were serving in pagan palaces, they seemed to, to gain the favor of everyone they worked with. Certainly Daniel, Daniel gained the favor of King Nebuchadnezzar and others as he was taken in Daniel chapter 1. Joseph, Potiphar loved this guy. The only reason he got thrown into jail was because Potiphar's wife loved him in a different way. So it's, it's, it's not that he responded to that, but certainly she was interested. And, and so here he ends up in jail. But even then, people in the prison liked Joseph. Everywhere he went, he had the favor of people around him. You think God had something to do with that? When you have favor, when you receive favor from others, even at work or in school or in life, just know that that's God's work. God does that. You might be a nice person, but you're not that great. It's God doing the work to make you the person you are today. And as we've said, divine providence triumphs man's, triumphs despite man's disobedience. Now, Esther did not reveal her nationality or her family background to anyone at the king's palace. And we're told that in verses 10 through 11. Look what it says. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. This is an interesting picture. He, he seems overly concerned about her, but not just about her, perhaps about some of the opportunities that her being in the palace can bring to him politically. As we go through this book, you're going to see he was driven by political advantage quite a bit here. Not so much that he didn't care for Esther, but you see he has an equal concern about his own position and it seems like he's willing to do whatever is necessary to gain position within the Persian court. Well, Mordecai had forbidden Esther to let anyone know that she was a Jew or that she was related to him. I'm not sure why. Maybe he felt it would work against her. But he was clearly a worldly man, conniving in his own strength for his own advantage. And this is hardly the behavior of a faithful Jew who trusted God. It is similar to Abraham and his son Isaac, who both lied about the identity of their wives. I think Abraham did it twice. So did God work despite their disobedience? Oh, yeah. But men of God have flaws. They make mistakes. And this is, I think, another example in the case of Mordecai. Esther obeyed Mordecai. She hid her identity as a Jew and as his adopted daughter. Now, when you think about it, Joseph, Moses, Daniel, even Nehemiah, they worked in the Persian court. Some of them worked in Persian court. Joseph was, uh, and Moses were in the Egyptian court, Daniel in the Babylonian court. They were in pagan courts. Uh, they didn't hide their identities. I don't know that they could, really, but they didn't. They were open about who they were. I mean, he really couldn't hide that. Esther seems to be able to hide it. Now, stop for a minute and think about that. What does that say? You know, today, if you walk through Brooklyn and you look at the Jewish neighborhoods in, in Brooklyn, or even here in Passaic, right around the corner, it's pretty hard not to see who's a Jew and who's not, right? I mean, you can kind of tell, right? The way they dress. You know, I mean, you know, it's obvious. Not, it's not a criticism. They're just a little different. It's not bad. It's just, you know, they're a little different. In fact, they're different because God has called them to be different. What happened? These Jews were called to be different. 
I don't think they're as different as they need to be, though, because something, something's wrong if you, if you can just kind of blend in with the people around you. Think about this. Do, do people around you know you're a Christian? Do you love God? Would people be surprised if they found out you were in church tonight? You know, I, one of the worst things that you can say about a Christian's character is if nobody knows who they are in Christ. I'm not saying you have to be an annoying person and tell everybody you bump into, uh, but certainly people should know there's something a little different about you. Maybe not how you dress or how you wear your hair, but certainly there should be something that means you can't blend in with the world. Come out from among them and be separate. Clearly, they were blending in. That's the point I'm trying to make. I mean, otherwise, how do you hide it? Right? Clearly. Well, Mordecai was walking near the courtyard of the harem every day to monitor Esther's well-being and progress. Well, that tells us something. He clearly had access to the king's palace, and he sat at the king's gate, as we'll see over and over again throughout this book. Where is he? Sitting at the king's gate. Even when he's not there, it says he wasn't sitting at the king's gate. So the king's gate was a place where judicial matters were handled. Official business was taking place. It's kind of like City Hall. That's where this man was, and he was most likely one of the royal officials that served in the king's palace. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had access to the palace. So now we're learning a little bit about Mordecai and Esther and starting to figure out, hmm, there's there's something going on here that shouldn't have been happening, but thank God God is God in all things. Amen? All right, so here's what happens. And this this is the the part of the, the chapter that I'm not very happy to even read, but I'll read it. In verses 12 through 14, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of, of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given, to, uh, given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Uh, and in the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. You know, that, that is just anybody that has a daughter or loves someone as a daughter understands how disgusting this is, how vulgar this is, how vile this is, right? I mean, I'm not going to go on and on about it, but it's gross. This is the world. Stuff like this still happens today, and we know it does. It doesn't mean it's right. God doesn't condone it. Oh, how could God let that happen? All kinds of stuff happens in this world that God allows to take place but doesn't condone and isn't his will. That's because he's given us free will, and boy, have we really ruined our lives with that by not submitting our will to God. And so women oftentimes suffer the result of man's excesses, if I can put it that way, their vulgar desires. This is no exception. These women were brought to Xerxes to spend an evening with him. They completed 12 months of beauty treatments, as we said, six with oil and myrrh and six with perfumes or cosmetics, whatever that means. And they were allowed to take anything they wanted from the harem when they went to the king. I assume that's their, their outfits, whatever. You know, it's, it, it, the objectification is just off the charts. And they arrived in the evening and returned to another part of the harem the next morning. That should explain it to you, right? They go in there as virgins. They come out as concubines. They would become concubines and placed under the care of another person, Shashgaz, and they would not return to the king unless he was pleased with them and summoned them by name. Imagine, it, 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 I am not a woman, obviously, but I, I don't even identify as one. And I'll tell you what, 
I don't like the idea one bit. That was supposed to be funny. I'm sure I offended someone. What else is new? But ladies, this is, this is bad. This is not a good situation. And there are so many women in our world that this is their reality on some level. Parts of the world, women have no rights. They're told who to marry. And it's, it's awful. I could go on and on about it. It's awful. And when Jesus comes again, this won't happen. Amen? Well, Esther was brought to Xerxes to spend an evening with him. Verses 15 and 16. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, Abahel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. And so Esther was brought there, taking only what she was told to bring. So basically those that showed her favor are helping her to gain more and more favor from the people around her. To her credit, she listens, but still, awful situation. She was taken to this uncircumcised pagan king to be a concubine. I mean, there's, there's nothing romantic about this. I, I was starting to watch uh, a number of years ago, there was a film, I think it was called Esther. I got about 10 minutes in and I shut it off because they were romanticizing this. There's nothing romantic about this. It's vulgar. Let's call it what it is. So I, that, that got shut off. I didn't even go very far into that. I think it was even a Christian movie. I don't know. Who the heck thought that that was a good idea? Anyway... This took place in 479 B.C., December or January of 479 B.C. And then Esther was chosen by Xerxes to become queen instead of Esther. And that should be no surprise. We know this book, but, you know, I, I don't know if it was a surprise to her. I imagine it was. God is working despite their disobedience, but God is working. And so we read in verses 17 through 18, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti, and the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials, and he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Gee, sounds pretty awful to me, to be honest. I just will say one more thing about this, and that is that this man is using her, just like he wanted to use Vashti. He wanted to use Vashti to show her off and get everybody's attention and make himself look good, and the same thing is happening here. God is still working, but listen, I don't think very highly of this guy. Let's put it that way. And another thing, I'm almost 58 now. And I understand, as a young man, you think differently. You do. You do. I'm not going to deny that. But thank God we get older and hopefully a little bit more mature. And we start to evaluate people, men and women, based on more than just what they look like. Right? I hope so. I hope men, as we get older, more mature. You don't have to be old. You can be old and immature, and you can be young and mature that you realize the most attractive quality in another person, and this is true for women as well, towards men, the most attractive quality in a person should be who they are, their character. Not 
their heart, exactly. Not what they look like. Now, I'm not saying you can't be attracted to a person. But so many people, that is like all they see. And that just, it's, it speaks of an immaturity that you expect in teenagers, not in grown men and women. We'll move on. So, Xerxes was more attracted to Esther than any of the other beautiful young virgins. That means he saw her as prettier, as it said, form and feature. You know, she, she just was more attractive to him. But even God is, God is even working in that, but still. Esther pleased Xerxes, won his favor and the approval over any of the other girls in the harem. And so she's crowned as his queen and honored as queen. Okay, she received a banquet. He gave a banquet for all of, notice, for all of his nobles and officials in the seventh year of his reign. Again, this is picking up where he left off, trying to gain support, trying to get people's attention. Oh, look at me. Look at my queen. You know, it's, it's, it's political. And he no doubt brought Esther to the banquet to display her beauty to his guests, like he tried to do with Vashti, proclaiming a holiday throughout the 127 provinces from India to northern Africa, and he generously distributed gifts to all his guests. Remember when I said this last week? When politicians or leaders give you something for free, there's always a cost. They want something. In our nation, sometimes it's votes, approval. Well, he's up to something again. And history tells us what it is. He's still not done trying to beat the Greeks. He's not going to succeed, but he's trying to gain more approval for costly wars. Well... Esther received the crown. She received the title. She received a banquet, even a holiday. Imagine that. But all of this in exchange for her purity. It's kind of sad. Kind of sad. God clearly did not approve of her actions, though, again, I don't believe she had much say. She had hid her identity as a Jew and as Mordecai's adopted daughter. She had married a pagan king. And divine providence triumphs despite, despite man's disobedience, but it doesn't excuse man's disobedience either. Okay? Finally, let's close it up here. What was Mordecai doing at this time? What was going on with him? Well, we're told. In verses 19 through 20, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai, so this gives us a little bit of a recap. This may not have been after the banquet. It probably was before, during the time when she was uh, in the harem. When the virgins were assembled the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. I mean, this is her father, her adopted father. So we learn this. We learn that Mordecai had been sitting at the king's gate the entire time that Esther was in the harem at the citadel of Susa. He was an official in the palace, clearly. He'd walked near the courtyard of the harem every day, as we said, monitoring her well-being and her progress, and he'd clearly had access to the king's palace. Again, most likely a royal official that served there. But had he separated himself from the pagan world, Esther would not have been taken to the harem. That much is clear, and we've already covered that. He had been sitting at the king's gate the second time that the virgins were assembled. And Esther, again, not having revealed her nationality or her family background, he's just kind of hanging out, looking for an opportunity. Though Mordecai had forbidden her to say anything, she, she obeyed him. But then, and you know, it's interesting because have you ever, ever just found yourself in the right place at the right time to hear something or to learn something? It's happened to me. 
And uh, this is what happened for Mordecai. Look what happened in verses 21 through 23. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on the gallows. And all of this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king, their history. Well, this is interesting. And again, you see God working despite their disobedience. Uh, Mordecai was hardly an obedient follower of God, but he is in the right place at the right time to gain information that he's able to convey to Esther, who by now is the queen, and make its way to King Xerxes. And, And it's interesting because nothing happens immediately, but ultimately this is the linchpin. This is, this is the information that makes it to the ears of the king later on and, and, and changes everything. So God is setting the stage for their deliverance before they even need to be delivered. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows where you're going to be next week? You don't. That he's already figured it out. He's already got a solution. He's, he's already cooking it up. And, and, and you don't even know that you need deliverance in the next month. But he already does. And he's already got it worked out. It's so important you understand that. God is working in ways yet undiscovered by you. You need, we need to understand that if we're going to have faith in this fallen world. That's a powerful message that discounts or looks past all the disobedience here. That God is good and working on your behalf despite your disobedience. Well, two of Xerxes' trusted bodyguards, they became angry with him. They're conspiring against him. I imagine Mordecai must have heard their discussion. He discovered a plot to assassinate him while he's sitting there. And Now, Xerxes had many enemies. Every king does, but especially right now, because he had critics and enemies after his disastrous and costly war against Greece. What they would do is get people to give money. This is how it worked. They would get people to give money for the war effort. And then people would sort of invest in the war effort with the promise that they were going to reap the results, right, of that war, of the victory. So people would give all this money, all this gold to the king, and the king would use it to pay his army and purchase weapons and all of these things. Then they would launch this campaign with the promise, we're definitely going to win, and when we win, you'll get a portion of the spoils. So basically people gave them money with the hope to receive interest at least, if not a significant amount more than they gave. It's like an investment, right? How would you feel if you invested in the stock market only to lose money? Like that's never happened, right? So you can imagine people are not real happy with King Xerxes because things didn't work out with that war against Greece. So he had many enemies. And Big Thon and Teresh were among them. They were two of the king's officers. They had immediate access to King Xerxes. They were his bodyguards, which means they were pretty high up in terms of power and influence. But they're clearly not happy. And when Mordecai found out about the plot and informed Esther, who reported to Xerxes on his behalf, these guys were in trouble. Now, listen, Mordecai was an opportunist. You got to see that. Clearly an opportunist. Obviously pleased that Esther was now queen because it gave him access to King Xerxes. And his loyalty to the king should have brought immediate promotion. But strangely, it didn't. Have you ever done something really great at work and you think, oh, that's it, I'm going to get this promotion, and then you don't? It's happened to me. 
You're thinking, oh, this is it. I'm definitely getting the supervisor position. And you don't. It goes to someone else. That happened to me one time. I remember. Um, and I liked my boss, don't get me wrong, but it kind of irked me because they were telling me, oh, you know, you're going to move up in this position. Well, it ended up that they eliminated a department and they had all these people at that level they needed to find jobs for. So you know what happened? Someone got the job I was supposed to get. And not only that, I had to work for them. I wasn't pleased. I didn't take it out on the person because it wasn't their fault. But I wasn't very happy. Sometimes we expect something good to happen and nothing happens. And we think, where's God? Sometimes we deserve better, but we don't get better. In fact, we get nothing. Bubkiss. So has that ever happened to you? Probably. What does that mean? God is working in ways yet undiscovered by you. You got to get to the rest of the story to understand how important it is to this account that he wasn't rewarded at this time, that it was deferred. Could there be blessings that you have yet to receive that have been deferred for his purposes and for your blessing? You got to count on that because God is good. Can I hear amen? He's good. You need to know. I need to know that. We need to know that. Well, these two officers were investigated, found guilty, and hanged on the gallows. Not surprising, and the entire account was recorded, which is very important to the plot. It was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. More to come. We'll, of course, pick this up next week, but uh, I think the message is clear. I hope it is. You can trust God. God is good. Don't weigh God's blessings based on what you and I can see. Trust that God is working in ways you cannot see and trust him that he truly does know what's best. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, the encouragement that comes when we trust you. And this account just helps us to see that you truly are working all things together for our good. Help us to continue to believe that, to know that. And if there's people here today, I'm sure that this message is speaking to their situation. Help them to see it is true. You can be trusted. You are a good God. That you have a perfect plan for our lives. And that plan may not unfold for some time or may unfold in the near future. But that we can trust you with it because you love us and you're working on our behalf. Help us to see that, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.